Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Um, we're going to do things a little differently today because I'm a little under the weather and uh, I might have to turn off my microphone a couple times and hack a loogie, but, um, <laughs> but that aside, <laughs> I, yeah, I used to be a fireman. I don't know if I told you guys, but... Um, I want to start off today uh, by asking you a question. When you travel, are you all about the destination or do you, are you really into the journey? How many of you are like, you're a destination person, just get me there? How many of you are like, oh, I just love the travel part, you know, getting there and along the way? Well, okay, thank you for participating, but I'm, yeah, it depends on how far it is, but I, uh, I'm pretty much a destination guy. I just want to get there. But I've noticed that a lot of the best stories that we, that we see in movies or books that we read, even though they're about like getting from one point to the other, the story is really about the journey, right? How many of you have seen 1883? Raise your hand. Yeah. All about the journey, right? How about uh, Around the World in 80 Days? How many of you read that by Jules Verne? Okay. How many of you read The Odyssey? Because you had to in college, right? And then, or how about the Exodus? The Exodus is a story about the journey, right? I wonder how the Apostle Paul saw his missionary journeys. You know, I get the distinct feeling that even though he's going from point A to point B or point Z, that the real story for him was what happened in between, about the people that he encountered, the opportunities that he had to make a difference, and how God could be a part of those relationships. And if you've been with us, we're going through this study of the fourth book in your New Testament. It's, it's very appropriate to follow Matthew, Mark, Luke, John stories of the life of Jesus, biographies of Jesus. And then Acts is about the first 30 years or so of the church that is formed by Christians taking the gospel around the known world then. And so Paul took three of these trips after his conversion to Christianity. And last week, one of our elders, David Williams, showed us that in his second journey, Paul had two purposes in his journey, his second journey, which was to visit the brothers and strengthen the churches and then to strengthen the disciples. So we looked at, the tri at his trip, his second trip, through the lens of those purposes or those goals. But today we're going to look at trip three that Paul takes the last of his formal trips, although not the last of Paul's journeys, right? Only today, we're going to be looking at his trip through the lens of geography, where he traveled from Acts 18.23 is where we're going to start. He spent some time in Antioch, and then he sets out from there to the end of his trip in Acts 21.17 when he arrives in Jerusalem and is there with the brothers and sisters and is received warmly. So this trip that he takes 
is a journey for sure. It's about 3,300 miles, 3,300 miles, and scholars wrestle with, was it a two-and-a-half-year to five-year time span that it took him to do it? Began in Antioch, concludes in Jerusalem, but it's what happens along the way that is the real story. So that's what we're going to do. We're going to look at today. We're going to follow, you know, kind of like that 10,000 foot level look at the Apostle Paul's third missionary journey. And then at the end, we're going to take a turn and we're going to talk about like why that trip that he took means something to us today. You guys, you guys ready for that? Okay. So I want you to either follow along in your map that's on your note sheet if you picked up one coming in, or we're also going to put a few of those shots in the map as we go through uh, Acts 18.23 all the way through 21.17. So Paul starts out from his sending church in Antioch, and he travels from there to a region, uh, two regions really, called Galatia and Phrygia, and he's been there before. So verse 18, 23 says that he is there visiting the churches and strengthening the disciples like David talked about last week. And while Paul is there in this region, Luke, the author of this book we're reading, and then also the, uh, the author of the Gospel of Luke, he's in Ephesus. And Paul's headed there next, but Luke gives a little preview of what has been happening in Ephesus before Paul gets there and the people that are doing that, the, the work there. And he mentions a converted Jew named Apollos who is doing ministry there in, in Ephesus. And in 1824, he, he, Luke writes, Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. And he was a learned man with thorough knowledge of the Scriptures. And he says that he is speaking boldly in the synagogues. And in verse 28, he says, he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. And yet, in spite of Apollos's great intelligence and his intensity and his oratory skills, he had a doctrinal gap that Luke notes. And in verse 25, he says that he had been instructed in the way of the Lord and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. It's interesting here how Luke describes this teaching that Apollos is doing. He's teaching about Jesus accurately, but there's something missing. As he's baptizing, he's baptizing believers in the name of John the Baptist, and apparently he has not heard of the coming of the Holy Spirit as it happened in Pentecost, way back when we started uh, this uh, historical record of the early church. So what's, what are some of the differences here? What, what is Luke bringing out? For number, well, number one, John's baptism was not a baptism to something, but from something. If you remember, as we went through the Gospel of Luke, we saw that John, his preaching was to kind of, it was a prelude to Jesus' coming. And he was saying to people, his message was, you must repent. You must turn away from the things that, that have become a part of your life. That is going to prepare you to receive the good news of Jesus. And so when he baptized people, he was baptizing them into this message of repentance. It was a message that said you must turn from something. But it wasn't quite 
yet to the part where it's who you turn to. Later, John starts to preach about that. And God, it seems, is using him here in Ephesus in spite of his ignorance on this matter. And you know what? All the people that God uses are flawed. There are no other versions of people who God uses. And it seems that the Holy Spirit is working through Apollos even when he had not known of him yet. That's the way God works through us. So he has this gap in his understanding. And a married couple comes along to help him. Luke writes, when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they hear his marvelous teaching. They invited him to their home, and they explained to him the way of God more adequately. So this couple, Priscilla and Aquila, they're going to help Apollos with his theology. And they are mentioned three times in the New Testament And what's interesting is Priscilla is always noted first. And they eventually become co-workers with Paul in Romans 16.3. That happens, and then Apollos goes on to Corinth, another city, and then Paul arrives in Ephesus. Ephesus, because of its location on the coast, and it's kind of like along the way that trade flows, in the first century, it's an ideal location. It's the center of economic and religious and political power. And it is also home to the great temple of Artemis, or to the Romans they called uh, this goddess Diana. And she was the goddess of fertility. And at the time, Artemis is the most worshipped deity in this region. So this is the biggest church in town. And this temple is one of the seven great wonders of the first century. It burns, it's destroyed by fire in the fourth century. But hundreds of male eunuchs serve there. And you have uh, prostitutes who are part of the religious worship that that is performed there. So this is totally different than Christianity. And I can imagine that uh, at that time it was Harder to get men to serve there than it is even here at Sunridge. <laughs> our, our, our qualifications aren't that strict, I just want to say. Are you guys with me here? Yes. So when Paul gets to Ephesus, uh, all of chapter 19 is dedicated to what happens there. And of course, a major church is established there, and you have a book in your New Testament, a letter that Paul writes to these believers, the letter Uh, to the Ephesians. This is a significant church, and it is one of Paul's most significant letters theologically for us today yet. And almost immediately upon arriving, Paul begins instructing those believers about the Holy Spirit. So apparently Apollos has left without really closing the loop on the gap in his theology, and Paul uh, makes up for it. And the first group that Paul... uh, that that is mentioned that Paul instructs, um, they speak in tongues when uh, they hear of the Holy Spirit, just like it happened in Pentecost. Paul then follows his usual strategy. What does he do? He goes to the synagogue, and he argues persuasively with the Jewish leaders and the people that will come and listen. 
at the local synagogue. Verse 9, some of them, though, became obstinate, and they refused to believe and publicly maligned the things that, were, that Paul was teaching. So then Paul leaves there, and he takes his disciples with him, and he starts to have discussions daily in what Luke calls the lecture hall of Tyrannus. So by Paul moving his team, he's seeking a communication venue where people are more open to what he is teaching, where he is sharing the gospel. And these was common, as we mentioned in before, like either in the synagogue or in other facilities, for people to gather midday and, um, you know, to listen to teaching or to talk philosophy. And culture then was, was kind of like um, you, you worked in the early day and then you worked later in the day, perhaps into the evening, but in the middle of the day you took a nap, you took a siesta, or uh, some people would go to these places like the lecture hall of Tyrannus. Maybe he owned this place. Scholars don't know. Um, uh, maybe he's a Greek teacher and he's established a teaching center. But like people would gather in these places at, at lunchtime and they would listen or talk. And that's what Paul is doing. He's taking his message to the public square. Uh, so Paul normally would give his mornings and his evenings to teach, uh, to, to, um, his trade, which was tent making, but in those midday times, that's when he would do his teaching. And verse 10 says that he did this for two years. So, all, so that all the Jews and the Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. And Luke even tells us that he has some radical conversions. Uh, there are some people that dramatically change their lives based on what they hear from the Apostle Paul when they hear the gospel. In verse 18, many of those who believed now came and openly confessed what they had done, these sorcerers, and a number of them who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. So they brought all of their documents and their religious writings and um, they burn them. Which, number one, those commodities are super valuable at that time. Parchment is not cheap. Writing utensils are not cheap. But they're also like torching their entire belief system. This is, this is not like a modern, modern book burning where, you know, um, like we think of it, it's like it's imposed on people and the books are collected as an illegal, um, you know, item and then they're burned. These are... Um, not their adversaries doing this, they're doing this willingly. And it reminds me a lot, you know, I became a Christian in the 1970s, that was way, way back when, back in the day, and uh, the, one of the worst evils of the day, you know, we've learned about hippies here before, we know how our former Pastor Mel felt about hippies, if you were here, <laughs> and, but they also, like it was common for, in my little part of the world, for them to preach against rock and roll, the evils of rock and roll music. And um, I remember we had one service at the church that I became a Christian in, and you know, the guy preached really hard on the evils of rock and roll, and then he invited everyone to come back that next night and bring all their albums and break them on the stage. And uh, several of my friends did that. I did not, you can imagine. And uh, all of my friends had to repurchase their albums later, I just like to say. So, Oftentimes, the gospel has a positive effect on business when it comes into a community. And, uh, but Luke tells us that as people were turning to Jesus, 
Here, they, they had stopped worshiping these false gods and going to these shrines, of, you know, pagan shrines. And so you have to remember that in everything, there's a business opportunity, right? So if people are worshiping false gods, somebody has to be manufacturing those false gods. And if they are going to a place of, a place of false worship, then someone has to be constructing those pagan houses of worship. And people are losing business. And it's interesting here how differently people can respond to the gospel. On one hand, you have these cult leaders who, for whom everything, they lose everything in converting to Christianity. They lose their position. They lose their income. They lose their, uh, their purpose in life. And it would have been Quite tempting, I would think, to find some way to merge my former sorcery with the gospel. And we see different versions of that today, but they didn't. They just totally rejected that old life. And then you have, on the other hand, kind of these craven business owners for whom the bottom line is everything. And they're not going to stand for a few principled Christians deflating their profit margin. So, as they start to lose their profit, one of the business owners calls the others together, and they organize against Paul and his companions. Verse 29, and soon the whole city was in an uproar. They get everybody all fired up, and they become a typical mob. When I say typical mob, I want you to look at verse 32 as I put it up on the screen. The assembly was in confusion. Some were shouting one thing, some another, and most of the people did not even know why they were there. Isn't that how it happens? Every time there's a mob, mobs remind me of a group of dogs when one starts barking. Have you seen this? They're all lollygagging around, wagging their tails, eyes half open, licking their paws, and then one who's a little more hyper than the other, and, and some of my kids have multiple dogs, I've seen this many times, the one hears something or is on edge, and he's like, Burf. and then what do all the other dogs do? They're like, they jump up, row, row, row. they don't even know why they're barking, but they're barking, and then pretty soon they're all off to the races, running around barking, nobody knows why they're barking. Mob. I digress. So what happens here is the city clerk, who's not a Christian by any means, he steps up and he calms everyone down with this. He says, basically disperse, or you're all going to get arrested. And so the crowd disperses. So sometimes, someone who's not a Christian can assist the gospel in going forward. It basically saves their lives. And it's about this time, I don't know if it's related to this particular happening or not, but that's when Paul starts to think about his return trip and what's next. And in verse 21, it says, after all this happened, Paul decided to go to Jerusalem, passing through Macedonia and Achaia. And after I've been there, he said, I must visit Rome also, hold on to that. We're going to talk about that in a few weeks. So after things calm down a bit, uh, Paul says goodbye, and he moves on to Macedonia with his team. And he spends three months going up and down the coast, hitting cities like Corinth, Berea, Thessalonica. And it's on this trip, this part of his trip, that Paul writes 2 Corinthians and Romans, which are super important books or letters in our Bible. And then from there, Paul starts to backtrack. And he's just going to work his way back home. We're going to follow this uh, in our map. He sends his crew ahead to Troas. And soon after, he follows. And he stays a week there teaching. 
And evidently, he's trying to cram a lot into seven days. Because Acts 20, verse 7, on the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people. And because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking till midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting, and seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. Now, I don't appreciate Luke putting that part in there. But he goes on, and he says, when he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. So, number one, this is why we do not have a multi-storied worship center. And I just want to let you guys know that I do see you when you start to nod off during my sermons. And um, I, it, it re, I can see you start to go. It remind, like when I went to college in Colorado, and it's freezing, you know, outside. And then you come into the warm classroom, the ice is melting off your beard, and that warmth, you can just look, look around and you see the people doing that. I see you guys doing that. I just want you to know. But because you're in a chair, if you fall, you're not going to die. You can thank us in our building design for that. So Luke says that Paul throws himself on Eutychus, and he announces that he's still alive, which is what I would do if someone fell down and died during one of my sermons as well, because I went on too long. And I imagine everybody felt a lot better about that long church service after that. By the way, this is the first mention of the church meeting on the first day of the week, on Sunday, instead of the Sabbath. And we don't know, had this become a practice, it's not mentioned, where, where you know, some scholars say that perhaps Christians wanted to separate themselves from, uh, in many cases, their, their Jewish life. And so they been, began meeting on another day. Maybe they're trying to accommodate people that are kind of tweeners, trying to make up their mind. Or maybe this is just a coincidence. But by the late first century, it seems to be the norm that Christians started meeting on Sunday. And that's why we're here today, in case you wondered. There's nothing special about the day. We can meet on Thursday or Saturday. And for some of us, that would probably be a, be a better day than Sunday because we could all be surfing right now. But historically, traditionally, Christians meet on Sunday morning. So here we are. From Troas, Paul seems to be in a hurry to get home as he touches, um, touches down in multiple cities, and he goes to Miletus. And it's there in Miletus that Luke tells us about this really poignant moment shared by Paul and the uh, leaders of the church of Ephesus. He sends for them, and Paul just seems to sense that something, something is looming. Something's going to happen, which it is. And in verse 25, he says, Now I know that none of you among whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. And he, then he gives them this charge in verse 28. He says, keep watch over yourselves and over the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers and be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. And then, verse 36, when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and he prayed. And they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. And what grieved them most was his statement that they should never see his face again. And then they accompanied him to the ship. And you know, this just shows how close Paul was to these leaders, how dear 
this church had become to him. They weep. And it shows how personal ministry can be. And after that stop in Miletus, it's pretty much a whirlwind to travel on the way back. A new ship and a new port almost every day till they make it to Tyre. And probably uh, by this point, Paul is at that place where you've had, you know, you've had a great trip, whether it's a missions trip or a vacation trip. Uh, you've had a great time and you'd love to stay longer, but home sounds pretty good. And so he is headed to Jerusalem, and something is looming, which we'll talk about more beginning next week. Um, nothing's being said here, particularly, but you can sense it in, the, in how Luke is writing this. And then after Tyre, they make a few quick stops in Ptolemy and Caesarea. And there in Caesarea, Paul stays with Philip, one of the original seven who were assigned to oversee the widows in, uh, in the church. Remember, that was in Acts chapter 6. And uh, his name is Philip. Uh, he stays with Philip, and his four daughters are uh, named as prophetesses by Luke in Acts. And it's there uh, that a prophet named Agabus comes to Paul, and he warns him. In verse 11, he says, Coming over to us, that he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and hand him over to the Gentiles. So if you see, something is coming. But for now, Paul just wants to get home. And he wants to be able to report the amazing things that he's seen God do. He must be physically and mentally and spiritually and emotionally depleted. Yet he has to be awful satisfied. And he's, he's probably really ready to just gather together with other believers, brothers and sisters, ones that may have contributed to sending him, and just a relish in Christian fellowship. And it's then that he arrives in Jerusalem, and Luke says that the brothers and sisters welcomed him warmly. So he's home. And how good does that feel? So, whew, guys still with me? That was three chapters and three years of ministry in about 17 minutes. So remember, one of the things that we're constantly saying about this historical record that uh, Luke has given us of the first century church, it's the only biblical record of the history of the church, that as we read it, we're not just reading history. We're not just reading their story. We're reading our story. And so I'd like to spend the last 15 minutes or so of my message talking about how what happened on this trip applies to you and me in the Temecula Valley in what is now September 2022. You know, it's not very likely that many of us are going to don our sandals and board a ship and go up and down the coast of the Mediterranean. If we do that, some of you may put on sandals and get on a ship that is in the Mediterranean, but that would be called a cruise for you, not a missionary trip, right? So most of us are never going to get on a boat like that and travel as itinerant missionaries, making a living as we go, sharing the gospel in synagogues and public places. But I want to say to you, as I've said after the first trip, we are missionaries nonetheless. We have a mission field. 
But I want you to look at it differently today. This is the big idea, I think, of what we read today. Your life is the journey. Your life is the trip that you're on. Have you ever thought about your life like that? You should. Because we wonder, why was the first century church so powerful? How did it impact a generation in a way that they saw such difference in people's lives? You have to remember that most of them did not get on a boat like Paul. Most of them, most of them, they had jobs, they went to work, they started businesses, they lived in neighborhoods, they got married, they had kids, they, made, they built families, they had hobbies, they took time off, they recreated, they went to their church, they improved their communities, and they hung out with their friends. But they all had opportunities to make a difference because that was their journey. Our lives are the journey. And just like them, we don't know, we, we kind of know our starting place, right? But no one here knows where we're going to end up, right? You don't know where you're going to end. But it's the in-between that is the story. It is the journey. Our lives are the journey. And along the way, you can help some people. You can help some people along the way. Think about Priscilla and Aquila. They were truly concerned about a brother named Apollos, and they wanted to help him get things right. They knew something that he didn't know. And you know, when they, when they realized that, they didn't slander him. They didn't complain about him. They didn't for, uh, forward disparaging things about him and pass on gossip about him. Instead, they took some time to help this guy. And as little mention as they get in the Bible, just three times, it is clearly who they are. They are the kind of people who come alongside others and help them. That is what they're known for. And interestingly here, they're always listed as a couple. So they use their marriage and their home to help other people. They did fill in the gaps for Apollos. And they sat with him and explained to him a more excellent way in his theology. But, you know, they also gave Paul a place to stay, Acts 18.3. And they hosted a church in their home, Romans 16 tells us. And a special note here, as I mentioned, they did it as a couple, as a team. And I think about, like, ministry at Sunridge. How do, all the ways that Sunridge touches people both on this campus and elsewhere, oftentimes... Married couples do it together. Think about our life group leaders. A lot of, lot of them are led by couples. Uh, interestingly, I mean, we have a pickleball group. It's, it's probably one of our most thriving groups here at Sunridge, pickleball. And, you know, that is led by a couple, Bruce and Suzanne McKenzie. They do it together. They serve with each other. And I think that if you're a couple, you should consider that. You should look for ways that you can serve together rather than just separating Ourselves. Now, you don't have to be a couple. They just happen to be a couple. The point here is that if we see our lives as the missionary journey that God has us on, we're going to have opportunities to help people along the way. And, you know, none of us are the same. 
We all have different resources. We have different opportunities. We have different personalities and circles of friends and places that we go. And this is how the gospel spreads. It's not a one-size-fits-all. I think about just like the last couple of months of Cindy and I together. We've had couples in our home. I've sat with people to talk through family conflict over coffee. And we just were able to host um, our mop steering committee in our family cabin. It's stuff that we've done together. Our lives are the missionary journey. And we have, along the way, we have an opportunity to help people. Now also, if you look at your life as the journey God has you on, you can, you can let some people help you. Key point here, if you let them. Apollos was a wicked smart, super gifted and charismatic leader. And I find it remarkable that a guy with his talent and his, his power, his presence, his ability, that he would sit with an unknown couple and hear them out and let them help him. It's pretty humble of him, I'd say. And you know he had a lot of different ways to respond to that, right? Do you know who you're talking to? I'm the great Apollos. You know, that was the sun god, by the way. Um, and I don't know if you know, but like, I'm a really powerful speaker. Instead, he listens to them. The point here, again, is that if we see our lives as a journey, we're going to realize that every once in a while, along the way, we're going to need some help. It might be in our marriage. It might be with our kids. It might be trying to figure out how God is calling me. It might be in my finances. It might be in my faith. It might be in a ministry. Or like, what's the next step for me in my life or my career? And here's the question that I think all of us have to ask. When that, when that moment happens, when someone comes alongside us and, they, and they're, they're there, sent by God to help us, are we going to be a rock or a sponge? You know the difference, right? If someone's pouring into you and you're a rock, it just sheds off and nothing gets in. But if you're a sponge, when someone pours into your life, you take in as much of it as you can and then you go in your life and you squeeze that out on others. So you're being helped by others and you're helping others as well. Along the way, when our life is a journey, we can either extol our virtues and be prideful and reject the help that God brings along in our lives or we can embrace what God is doing around us. So, also along the way, if you see your life as a journey, I want to guarantee you that you'll face opposition. You'll face opposition. Do you ever wonder why... like? Like, why some people just hate Christianity so much. It's befuddling to me sometimes. I mean, I know they can hate Christians because not all Christians are nice. I get it. But, you know, and you could say, well, I don't believe that. But, like, there can be an opposition. Like, real hot feelings toward just you saying that you believe in Jesus. I don't know if you remember this slide from last week that David gave us, but... I thought this was like one of the most brilliant slides I've ever seen in my life. And, you know, 
It started with visiting the brothers and strengthening the churches and then strengthening the disciples. And there was all the things that happened. Demons cast out, visions, church grew in numbers. There were visions, Lydia and the jailer, you know. And Paul is teaching in the synagogues, he and his companions. But what do you see is constant in all of it? There's always opposition. Personally, I think that sometimes we bring that upon ourselves by being hypocritical or unloving or allowing our, the pure faith, the pure gospel to be so contaminated by other things. So don't create your own persecution. But that aside, I think all of us need to be ready for and to be braced for and to assure that God is strengthening us inside for the opposition it's going to happen. And it can come from anywhere. In spite of your, your best intentions and your best efforts, it won't be your fault. But when it does, here's, here's a statement that I read studying for this message, and it really helped me when I think about opposition to what God is doing. Standing with Jesus doesn't necessarily mean that you're standing against another person. Did you get that? Standing with Jesus does not necessarily mean that you are standing against a person. You're just standing with Jesus. And if you stand with Jesus, sometimes people won't like it. And you'll do your best because it'll seem like a misunderstanding. You'll try to smooth it over. But sometimes your beliefs are just going to clash with culture. And they're going to label you. And maybe say some unkind things about you. They may even attack you. They might blame you for their problems. And you know, that includes from our own family. Christian people can be super ugly at times too. And that's sad. That's a sad testimony on us. But on the other hand, you just have to be ready for that. And if, but if you see your life as a journey, you, you, again, you're going to be able to help others. They're going to help you. You're going to face opposition. But you also have some people in your life that will mean an awful lot to you. If, your life is, if you see your life as a journey, you're going to have the opportunity to do life with, to work alongside people who are very different than you, you're going to admire so much. You're going to be bonded to them in a way that you can't have that bond with someone who doesn't have the Spirit of God in them. And you're going to love them. Can a dude say that out loud? You're going to love those people. If you look at Paul and the elders from Ephesus... Paul was there about three years working very closely with those leaders. And when he called them up to Miletus so he could say his goodbyes with them, look again in verse 36. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. And they all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved him most, what grieved them most was his statement that he would never see his face again. You know, I picture Paul, I don't know about you, being a pretty intense and crusty guy. But you can tell he loved these people. A couple of weeks ago, we had the great Mel Grahams in our presence. 
one of our former pastors. He's 92, and you know he left here and did ministry up in uh, Central Coast. And um, you guys know I love Mel, and I know he listens to this message. So Mel, I'm not trying to flatter you, but you know uh, the night before he left, Cindy and I had him in our home, and you know we had um, um, what do you call that? Um, What's a fancy charcuterie? A snack tray, right? But we call it charcuterie. We had that with them, and, you know, we just talked, told stories, and, you know, those of you that are here when I interviewed him, I know you love him, but I love him like you can't even imagine. And when we got all done, he said, can, oof, just getting me just thinking about it. He said, can I pray for you? And I had, oh, geez. I'm embarrassed. Um, three inches of skull surrounding a walnut-sized brain. You cannot hurt. hurt. This is a weapon, not a, not a thinking object. Um, when he prayed for us, for me and Cindy, I had so many emotions running around in my head and thoughts just to think, you know, He's 92. When's the next time he'll be in California? Am I likely to go to Texas? Is this the last time that I'm going to see Mel? And as he prayed for me and Cindy, I mean, we wept out loud. And when I think about the people that I've gotten to work with over the years that I've done ministry or in the fire department, the people that I've been able to bond with, whether it's former elders or our staff. I think about people like John Gaskins, who retired and he moved to Arizona. I think about my friend Ken Muncie, who we spent years on the fire department together, and we worked in offices right next to each other here, and we've shared so many memories. I think about Pam sitting here out in her audience who was with us for 17 years, and I think, how lucky am I? How lucky am I to get to work with people like that? And this, this last week, we got to have, we, we took a week off, kind of a week off, and uh, we spent it up at our place in Arrowhead with um, our dear friends, uh, Joe and Julie Schultz, who we did ministry in Huntington Beach years ago together. And we're still the best of friends. They're like family, brothers and sisters. And man, those relationships are so precious to me. And I, I, it's, it's like we didn't set out to like, well, we got to make some friends here. It's like these are relationships that came out of us being on a journey together, seeing our lives as that journey to share the gospel. You know, when Paul was in Thessalonica on this trip, he wrote this, 1 Thessalonians 2, 8. We cared for you because we loved you so much. We were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. The point here is that when we see our lives as the journey God has us on, we will have the privilege to bond with and work alongside amazing people that God has put in our path. If we see our lives that way, along the way, you'll also endure a few really long church services. I think that's a freebie, but that's a reference to Eutychus. So I was just checking to see if you're still with me there. Last, if we see our lives as a journey, 
then you'll have all kinds of opportunities to shine the light of the gospel. The truth is, you're going to have those opportunities whether you see your life as a journey or not. The question is, are you going to see them? The question is, are you going to take the opportunity? Because they're pretty easy to miss when you're not looking for them. When you're distracted by other things, by important things, but less important things. And I guess the question I have for all of us, is that how we view our life? Are we looking at our lives as the journey that God has us on, that is our missionary journey? And with everything that's going on in the world or in our families or in our community or on our street, are there opportunities there for us to shine the light of what God can do when a person responds to the gospel? When we think about what we're learning about this first century church, how remarkable the things were that happened, that God did through them, and we wonder how did that happen, I think we should see that the heritage the first century church gave us is that they were just Christians serving Jesus. Some of them were going on big trips in boats, but most of them were just living in their community. And they weren't going around the world, but they might have been going across the street. They weren't speaking in a synagogue, but they talked to their neighbor. They weren't making tents just so that they could have enough money to go to the next place, but they were probably doing some job along somebody else, alongside them, and they had an opportunity to talk about Jesus there. The question is, are we looking for those opportunities to live out the gospel and to share the, God new, the, the good news when God gives us an opportunity? We have so many opportunities today, but to capture them, we're going to have to see our lives as the journey God has us on, our own missionary trip. So, here's a question, and I'll close. Think about the week that's coming up for you. Monday. You have the day off, probably. Not all of you do, but some of you do. And then there's Tuesday, and Wednesday, and Thursday. You get it. Are you going to see this week through a new lens? How, how will this week look different in the conversations you're going to have, the places you're going to go, the things you have to do? How is that week going to be different if tomorrow when you wake up, you see your life as the journey God has you on? What difference is that going to make? And then think about all the wonderful things that can happen along the way if you do. Let's pray. God, we want to just take a moment here and think about the endless possibilities that you can bring about for us to impact the people around us. Not in a, I, none of us can even, even possibly think about being an Apostle Paul or an Apollos but we might be an Aquila and a Priscilla. We might be a neighbor. We know 
that you've called us, not just to live in heaven with you forever and to enjoy Christian fellowship in a perfect environment, but you've called us to shine the light in this world. Help us to look at our lives differently this week and the following week and the next month and the next year. And God, would you make our families a place where people can make a difference. Give us opportunities at work and in our neighborhood. And raise this church up, these people that are called Sunridge, to be a shining light in this community for for what you're doing in the world today because our life is the journey. Amen. God bless you guys. Let's stand and worship together. Hey, everybody. It's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.